Vet Folio Voice friends. I'm so glad you're here for an awesome episode sponsored by Vetra Science, where I'm joined by Dr. Chris Pockle to discuss something we may not often face in practice, and that's training, but not only training, training cats. Now, I'll admit, I am no expert when it comes to training and behavior, but feline behavior can be particularly challenging. And if my simple solutions aren't successful, I have certainly found myself at a loss for making recommendations to owners. Fortunately, we have amazing veterinary behaviorists like Dr. Pockle, and he was full of expert tips to help practitioners and other veterinary professionals understand feline behavior and help facilitate training and ultimately enhance the relationships between pet owners and their feline companions. Dr. Pockle is a board-certified veterinary behaviorist and is the owner and lead clinician at the Animal Behavior Clinic in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Pockle lectures extensively both domestically and internationally, teaches courses at multiple veterinary schools in the United States, and has authored numerous articles and book chapters for veterinarians and pet owners. He's a sought-after expert witness for legal cases and serves on the editorial advisory board for DVM 360. He's also vice president of veterinary behavior for Instinct Dog Behavior and Training, as well as co-owner of Instinct Portland, which opened in the fall of 2020. And on top of all of that, he was super fun and full of energy. I think you'll really enjoy our conversation. I'm here today with Dr. Chris Pockle. Dr. Pockle, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me on the show, Cassie. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to dive into this conversation. We're excited to have you. And, you know, as we mentioned in the intro, you're a veterinary behaviorist. So can you talk to us a little bit about your role in training and behavior and how that differs from, say, me as a general practitioner or a trainer or some other sort of animal behavior professional? Absolutely. So, you know, my background is first and foremost as a veterinarian. So that was my vision from, you know, the time I was a wee little toddler, as as, as far as my mom tells me. So I'm a veterinarian first and foremost. So my brain processes cases really through that same medical model and that whole damn it scheme and differential diagnosis piece. I That's the way my brain works too. And I really focus my lens on those behavioral issues. So the thing, the thing that really sort of allows me to sort of move beyond the general practitioner is the understanding not only of the physical dynamics and the overall physical and, and health of that animal, but also where that intersects with learning and brain development and psychology and family relationships and all of those things that come into the training and behavior modification side of things. And so in many cases, as a vet behaviorist, my role is, well, often as a translator, I'm working with general practitioners to help them understand the training and behavior side. I'm working with trainers and behavior consultants to help them understand how medical issues may masquerade as behavior problems to really try to enhance that conversation across that entire spectrum. And then also working with caregivers, pet owners, shelters, whatever the the caregiver role might happen to be to help them understand the animal in front of them what are we seeing? How do we describe it? Do we think there may be a medical component to that as well? Or is this something that we feel like we can address really through more of a straightforward, streamlined training and behavior modification program? So I got to have all of those tools in the toolbox to really do my job effectively. You do. You do. You're the bridge that connects all of us. 
Exactly right. And I, I, I'll be very honest. I love the fact that I get to act as that bridge, both from the veterinary community as well as to the training and the behavior community, and to be able to kind of speak both languages in that regard, because there are so many brilliant professionals across all of those aspects of the profession that when we really tap into those elements that others can provide, it takes so much of the pressure off us as practitioners to feel like we need to be the source of all of the information. I was going to say, I'd love to look at that and say, oh, it, you know, we accomplish all these wonderful things for the pets, which we do, but my, the first place my brain went was, oh yes, it takes so much pressure off of me when we're all involved. Yes, it, it really does. You know, as they say, it takes a village, right? And, you know, and, and I think, especially with the field of training and behavior modification, we are busy professionals in the clinic. We're not often operating in the home environment. We're not available just based on our schedules to really provide that day-to-day, week-to-week coaching that's often needed for behavior modification programs, regardless of the species that we're working with. So having those collaborative relationships is everything for setting our clients and our patients up for success. Absolutely. Absolutely. So kind of going back to the beginning here with a really basic question of what is training? So training training is a conversation and it's a way in which we can really enable that communication to happen from the caregiver to the animal. And we use a lot of different components within that. We're often lasering our focus on the behavior that the animal is offering. And then we're looking either at consequences to be able to manipulate, either reinforce, or in rare cases, using a punishment or correction to suppress that behavior. Again, truly rare. That's never a default strategy. Or we're looking at environmental modifications to really set that animal up to be successful. And that's where we can really dive into more of a a perspective that allows us to approach it across multiple prongs of our approach to actually create a comprehensive plan. And you've mentioned this three-pronged approach. Can you break that down a little bit more specifically for us into what that three-pronged approach encompasses? Absolutely. So for me, the three prongs are behavior modification, environmental management, and medication. Now, what that really means for me is that if I'm looking at an, at an animal or, or a problem that perhaps my client has presented to me, and they're saying, hey, here's what we're trying to fix, here's our pain point, here's the struggle we're having, my brain says, okay, if we want this animal to feel or do differently, we have to incorporate some degree of behavior modification. So that's always first on my list, always incorporating that in. Now, we know that that can take some time right? It's, it's not necessarily something where we can snap our fingers and immediately change behavior patterns for ourselves or for the animals we're working with. So I say we're always going to do behavior modification, but until that's really taken hold, we're probably looking at some form of environmental modification, either to keep that animal safe or to keep others safe or to protect household furniture or whatever the case may be, so that we're not only maintaining safety, but we're also preventing that animal from rehearsing and practicing that unwanted behavior, because quite honestly, the more they do it, the better they get, right? So always behavior modification, and until that takes hold, we're looking at some of those environmental modifications. And the third prong then is medication, which for me fits into the quote unquote 
if needed, or if likely to be helpful category to say, guess what? We're gonna be working with that animal to help them learn and we're keeping them out of trouble. But if we need to speed up the timeline or perhaps there's a level of emotionality that's driving the bus behind that behavior or that motivation, can I use some form of medication that helps us to make faster or more reliable progress? And then within that medication umbrella, what I always have to remind my clients of is that for me, medication includes pharmaceuticals, but it's not restricted to them. It may involve pheromones, it may involve supplements, it may involve nutraceuticals, it may be involving dietary changes or probiotics or prebiotics or postbiotics or all of the other biotics that we have on the shelf right now. And then I can dive in a little bit more specifically and say, hey, what makes sense for us in this particular animal? If I'm working with a cat, for example, and I need to make sure that I'm utilizing something that is specifically labeled for cats, that might bring me around to something like the Composure Pro Feline that allows us to really supplement that animal's intake with ingredients that may reduce emotionality while we're trying to work with them to help them learn and understand and all of the things that we're trying to accomplish. So for me, it's that entire comprehensive plan that that really makes up that three prong, not to say that every plan needs to include all of those things, but they're always on my radar for consideration when I'm trying to go into that problem solving mode. So let's expand on that a little bit more. What's your basic approach when it comes to training? Yeah, it's such a great question and, and really testing for comprehension and you know what's the method. You know, quite honestly, for me, I, I often start rather than coming in with a preformed agenda of what I want or need that animal to do, I have to sit back and just, well, observe for just a little bit to find out who is that animal? What are they doing? What are the behaviors that they're offering sort of naturally already? Or perhaps what are we trying to fix or address or change? You know, and I often think about behavior modification from the standpoint of asking the question in this situation or in this context, how do I want this animal to feel or what do I want that animal to do? And really nailing that down to the best of our ability allows us to, to get sort of a laser focus on what we're trying to accomplish versus so many of us come at training and behavior modification more from a, how do I stop this animal from doing X, Y, or Z? So I really find it necessary to reframe that and say, wait a minute, this is an animal who's doing something already or feeling something already based on their learning history, based on their genetics, based on you know their species or some, some other influence. And if I want to change that in some way, I kind of have to start with where that animal is. And so from, from that standpoint, you know, I, I say all of that because in some cases, the animal may already have in their behavioral repertoire the behavior that I'm trying to strengthen. And if that's the case, then it may be a matter of really just capturing that and, and applying a reinforcement, whether that's praise or petting or play or perhaps food, to strengthen that response in those specific circumstances. And then in other situations, we may actually be trying to create a brand new behavior for that animal. So we may be relying more on luring or trying to set up the, the we call it the antecedent conditions to try to make a particular behavior or emotional response more likely to happen so that we can then again provide that consequence to let that animal know, thumbs up, good job. That's exactly what I was looking for. Let's try it again. 
I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's a, it's a really good reminder because I'm thinking back to conversations about like potty training and stuff like that, that I have with pet owners. And, you know, they'll ask me, what do I do? And I, I can think of many times where I've said, you know, they want to know what you want them to do. Not it's, it's much easier to tell them what you want rather than what you don't want. But when you go beyond like potty training, sit, stay, come stuff like that, I know for me personally, those concepts that you're describing, they get kind of lost because, because it does get stressful and it gets frustrating. So remembering that, I, I just think your answer there was such a good reminder to all of us. I'm glad that landed well, especially really thinking about practical terms. I mean, as a veterinarian, I mean, we're bouncing from room to room, from conversation to conversation. If we're not conscious of the principles that we're really trying to communicate, it's really easy to to kind of land in that problem solving or squash the behavior mode <laughs> where we say, hey, I've got a problem. How do I stop it? And, and, you know, and that makes sense. And I, you know, when I'm talking with clients, I really try to listen first because if they're saying, hey, I need, I need for my cat to stop scratching the furniture. Okay, that's the problem we're trying to solve. But I, as the practitioner, need to insert that additional step and not just say, how do we stop that? But exactly as we were saying, what is it that we want them to do or feel in that same circumstance? That's what gets us into training and education rather than just trying to, you know, quiet the pain point, if you will. Endless cycle of frustration. 100%. So a lot of these problem behaviors, you know, cats scratching the furniture, dogs peeing on the floor, whatever it may be, a lot of these behaviors are attention-seeking behaviors. So can you talk to us a little bit more about what these types of attention-seeking behaviors, what they might look like and why we're seeing them? For sure. You know, and there's a couple of things to, to remember is that even some of the behaviors, let's say like scratching the furniture that could show up as an attention-seeking behavior may also have multiple other explanations. First and foremost, scratching of the furniture is really a social communication method for animals. They're depositing pheromones from the interdigital space. They're leaving physical visual marks on furniture as they would normally do as a communication method in a more natural environment. What often happens, though, is that the behaviors that are, well, I often describe to my clients, sufficiently annoying such that they get responded to may accidentally reinforce those behaviors, especially if this is an animal that happens to be living in a relatively, let's say, impoverished environment from an enrichment standpoint. So they're just kind of clicking along, doing their thing. And lo and behold, they put their claws on the furniture and all of a sudden the entire family is interacting with them we may have that accidental reinforcement where the cat in this case or dogs in other circumstances where they're barking or engaging in other behaviors figure out, gosh, the best way to get interaction with my family is to do the thing that, you know, gets a reaction each and every time. And once that learning contingency is set for the animals, whew, we're off to the races. We now sort of are, are, are moving in that direction, speaking of a cycle, and now the animal's more likely to do that again, which means we're more likely to respond. We actually even get bigger in our responses because we're often frustrated. So now the animal is learning, gosh, not only does it work, it keeps working better and better and better. 
at all the success I'm having. It's amazing. I'm brilliant. <laughs> and look at all the things I can do to get these reactions. So, you know, when we're thinking about the motivations behind behavior, we absolutely need to keep that, you know, attention seeking or feedback seeking even, you know, sometimes that's, you know, my, my clients will say, well, gosh, you know, I'm not giving them anything positive. How could they possibly see this as a reward? And they're still getting feedback. They're still getting social interaction. And especially as so many of us have learned over the last couple of years, especially community and social relationships are inherently reinforcing. And the same often holds true for our companion animals. I feel like also for toddlers. <laughs> also for toddlers. Exactly right. Yeah, I often have these conversations with family where we're talking about working with the animal and I can see the client's wheels starting to spin. And I'm like, yes, toddlers, teenagers <laughs> and spouses, same rules apply. You just can't let them know that you're manipulating their behavior. Otherwise, it goes all kinds of wonky and off the rails. Right. So in, in that way, maybe it's a little easier with our animals. <laughs> <laughs> it, it absolutely is. You know, we have the ability to to really set those agendas very well. Well, and I like what you're saying there. I think that advice is kind of telling us to be fair to the animal, you know, be fair to to these cats in particular, where this is there we're living in the same environment and coexisting relatively peacefully, but like you said, these are communication behaviors. These are natural things. We think about that when we talk about feeding cats or inappropriate urination and, and things like that. We also need to be fair with some of these other attention-seeking behaviors to understand that they're they're just displaying natural behaviors. It just doesn't fit in with our cohabitation situation. It's exactly right. And I, I, there's a couple little catchphrases that I find myself repeating with clients just to help them. Well, and I would say clients or veterinarians or other professional colleagues that especially when our brain goes into more of that correction mode, you know, grab the squirt bottle, you know, chase the cat off the counter, whatever the case may be to, to, to intervene. I really try to make sure that before we jump into correction mode, we've provided an education mode first. And even before we go into education mode, we've provided an empathy mode as well. So understanding the animal, then steering them in the direction of what we need. And I'm gonna say worst case scenario because the, the vast majority of the time corrections are actually completely irrelevant. They're just not necessary. When we first understand and then educate, the corrections are few and far between. And again, often obsolete for truly effective behavior modification plans. And I think that segues really well into my next question, where kind of like we talked about a lot of a lot of the concepts that you're explaining here, they make a lot of sense. So when you explain these to whether they be pet owners or, or veterinarians or other veterinary professionals, what are the pitfalls that you encounter commonly? Yeah, you know, it's it, it's 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 a scenario where every conversation is a little bit different. And just as I'm describing that that conversation with the animal in terms of empathy, then education, plus or minus corrections, the way down the down the down the track, I do the same thing with my clients. So I first have to kind of figure out where we're starting from. What's your understanding? What's your concept about what we're seeing? Are you in fact aware of body language so that you and I are looking at this animal through similar lenses? Or are you seeing this scenario completely and totally different? In which case, gosh, until I reframe that lens, 
my feedback is probably not going to land particularly well. And I, you know, I think about that from a, a case example that I, I worked with a number of years ago and I, I showed up to, to the household and it was an animal that was uh, responding aggressively to visitors to the home, including to me when I showed up for a house call. And the owner's perception upon a little bit of questioning was that this was an animal who was, quote unquote, full of themselves and showing off. And and I said, well, pause button here for just a second. Can I share with you what I'm seeing within the body language? And when we dug in just a little bit deeper, the body language was classic for fear-based or defensive issues. Now, I mentioned that example because if I had just walked in and started giving treatment recommendations for fear-based behaviors that may involve advocating for the animal or perhaps using food or other reinforcement to help change their, their emotional state, if the owner is coming at that from a perspective of this animal being full of themselves and showing off, and now I'm saying, no, 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 coddle them further and give them food, <laughs> it's not going to land well. And chances are, even if they bought into it, they'd probably implement it incorrectly because we're just not looking at the animal the same way. So I think the pitfall for me sometimes, the one, the biggest one that I try to overcome is I have to make sure that I'm not jumping into solutions mode before I really understand, even at a basic level, what are we actually trying to accomplish here? And both in terms of me as a clinician and also for the client themselves, I've got to guide that step directly, just as we would with the rest of our medical care, right? I wouldn't walk into a room and the client says, gosh, my dog is, is peeing in the house or my, my cat is peeing outside of the litter box. I wouldn't immediately just say, here, here are three solutions for that. It's like, no, no, we, we probably need to run a urinalysis. Let's do a physical exam. Let me ask you a few questions so I understand the problem. We do it already on the medical side. The behavioral toolbox is exactly the same when we apply that lens. So it sounds like we, from a training standpoint, when we're working with these animals, we need, like you said, to have empathy and then education. And then also as veterinarians talking to clients about this, same approach, empathy and education. And then you can go into that correction, that solution mode. So it's almost like we're handling, you know, the people involved in the situation the same way. And I, I thinking of myself, I'm going, well, yeah, that, that's how I would want to be talked to. Cause you know, I have a puppy, he's a pain in the neck. Uh, and so I, yes, you know, empathy and education for him, but also empathy and education for me. Cause sometimes it's a really, really big pain in the neck. Well, it's exactly true. And, and for clients who are working with either normal behaviors that are annoying or problematic, thinking about puppies and kittens waking up owners in the middle of the night and those sorts of issues, or whether we're dealing with truly emotional disorders or urine marking in cats, which is you know incredibly frustrating as a behavior problem, I do find that many of my owners, before they even ask for advice, have probably tried to do a bit of problem solving on their own. And many of them have reached for solutions that are perhaps not the most humane options when it comes to, to, to behavior change protocols. And so if I just jump in and, and talk at them with solutions without hearing their, their background, without hearing their story, I run the risk of actually 
well, judging or them being perceived as being judged. And that tends to shut down the conversation just like it does with the animal. If I jump into correction mode, I'm more likely to get an animal that responds defensively or shuts down entirely. So the rules of behavior change and how we communicate in these ways is, is pretty universal across the species lines, even though a human is likely to do something different than a cat would, than a dog would, than a parrot would but the principles are very much the same. So let's gear back to to cats here for a minute because I feel pretty comfortable when I'm talking to people about different techniques for training their dogs and accomplishing different behaviors. But cats, I mean, cats are literally and figuratively a whole different animal. So what are the specific concepts we should keep in mind when we're trying to work with cats as opposed to dogs? Uh, I'm so glad we're diving into this question because they're, they, are, they are not just quote unquote little dogs and we can apply the same principles. Some of it applies, but yeah, we definitely need to make some adjustments. The first thing that I try to stress to my clients is that cats, while yes, we can absolutely do incredible training and behavior modification protocols, I tend to start one step before that and saying, hey, let's take a look at the environment that this this cat is living in, operating within. What's the environment? You know, for things like, let's say, cats who are on the kitchen counter and an owner says, how do I get my cat off the counter? Well, I could focus just on that particular behavior and we could work with training there. But if I go back a step and I understand that cats are often on the counter either because that's where they're finding food or because it's an elevated surface and either they feel more comfortable or safer or maybe that gives them window access. So I kind of have to look and say, well, why are they on the counter to begin with? Because the solution in that case may not actually even be about training but rather about saying this is a cat who wants to be elevated. Cool. What if I put a cat tree next to the kitchen counter. If that's an option within the physical layout, most of the cats, especially if we remove the food reinforcement from the counter (laughs) as well, which is also environmental management. If we do that, most of those cats will gravitate toward the higher elevated textured surface. Cool, problem solved. And we didn't even need to necessarily dive into the training piece. So I want to make sure before we dive into training, we're also saying, hey, wait a minute, why do we think this animal is responding in this way? And is there an actual, well, easy button to try to get to that solution without even having to go through that? Because I'll be honest with you, especially for a cat who hasn't experienced a lot of training in the past, the initial inroads can be a little bit frustrating for everybody in some cases. Because that conversation about learning cues and learning how to pair those reinforcers with specific behaviors may not be a fluent skill for that cat right to begin with. And then as we get into the specifics of cats, we think about things like food reinforcement that we use so commonly with dogs. We can absolutely do that with cats as well. However, cats eat differently, right? So they tend to eat little tiny morsels and they may take a few seconds to swallow that bite and they may not even be interested in going back for another bite for a couple of seconds. So rather than a dog where we may be able to do reinforcer after reinforcer after reinforcer and really get some really fast behavioral momentum, we often have to have a bit more patience and a bit more consistency with cats 
especially because if we try to force or manipulate that cat into doing the thing we want them to do, it's not going to go well for anyone. And we're certainly not going to accomplish our training goal. So really being, being aware of, of the, the way in which cats may experience those reinforcers and say, okay, if I'm using food, I'm probably only going to get three or five reinforcements within a short training session, whereas a dog, I might get 30 to 50 if it's a big dog. So our training may take a bit longer. I may have to do shorter sessions because the cat attention span, especially in the early side of training, may be a bit shorter. And they often tend to be a bit more environmentally focused, meaning we may need to set up the environment. So while I'm teaching that particular animal a new behavior sequence, I may need to be really attentive to getting rid of distractions or other things that may pull that cat's focus in another direction. So it, it, little things like that can make all the difference in terms of getting that momentum right from the start. I mean, it makes so much sense that, especially with our indoor cats, that the environment matters so much. We know that it matters when it comes to feeding and when it comes to their weight, when it comes to their litter box habits. Of course, it would make sense when it comes to either training type of situations or fixing problem behaviors. Yeah, it really does. And that I think is, it's also important for other species, but it, for me, it's, it's often my first stop when I'm working with feline training or behavior modification protocols to make sure that I'm not overlooking something that perhaps is going to make that training process harder than it needs to be. And ultimately, I'm trying to set everybody up for success. I want the owner to be successful. I want the animal to be successful. That's where we get anxiety reduction. That's where we get really you know, great, healthy human-animal bonds developing, and we just really get to have fun and enjoy one another's company. Along those lines, let's talk about some urgent training situations. I've brought up litter box habits a couple of times because that's that's a big one where owners will say, look, if we can't get this type of behavior under control, then I mean, I'm going to rehome, you know, God forbid it's I'm going to euthanize or, or but something's got to change. I can't clean up cat pee like this for the rest of my life. And I, I completely respect that. I would not want to be in that scenario either. How do you approach these situations when you have a behavior that you need to fix quickly? Yeah, I, I think it's important to reset expectations, number one, and this, this may look a little bit different from, from one scenario to the next, but the vast majority of behavior problems, by the time they reach sort of that critical threshold, they've often been brewing or developing over a period of time, which almost always means we're not going to fix it by tomorrow. We're, we're just not, you know, it, it doesn't mean we can't fix it. It doesn't mean we might be able to fix it quickly, but I need to, to, to work with that client to figure out, hey, is there a temporary management triage step that we can put in place to reduce that stress and, you know, frustration and anger and all of that animosity that may be there in that moment, which may be a matter of saying, hey, in the example you mentioned, Dr. Cassie, if we're thinking about that cat who is, is urinating outside of the box, for example, could we temporarily confine that cat to a smaller area, even if it's an area where the cat is still going to potentially soil, but it's easier to clean? That's not the solution. That's not the long-term plan. But does that allow us all to take a little bit of a breath, 
give us time to look for medical causes if we think that's part of our workup or our differential diagnosis plan, and then actually say with intention, here's what we're going to, to do to address that. We're either going to add a litter box or we're going to do a preference trial or we're going to use a medication that may help from a urine marking standpoint, whatever that treatment happens to be. But for me, it's it's really what are we trying to accomplish right here, right now? You need your cat to not pee on the couch. Cool. We can work with that. How <laughs> do we do that right here, right now, even if the actual training plan may take us a little bit longer to implement? Okay. Just building yourself a safety valve into that situation. The great way to describe it is, yeah, just can we depressurize the system for <laughs> just a second? Because I'll be honest, none of us, myself included, make really sound thoughtful decisions about what to do next when we're operating from a place of significant emotionality, whether that's frustration or whether it's fear. You know, I have a lot of clients who are worried even that, gosh, if we can't get this under wraps, I may need to euthanize. I don't want to, but I'm, I'm actually worried. I love this animal and, and I need this to be fixed. So all of that emotion is really a big part of my initial approach to those cases is say, hey, where are you at? What are we actually trying to solve and what timeline is acceptable versus ideal? Where do we go from here? That empathy portion of it. 100%. So you're working with these behavior cases quite a bit. So talking to someone like me, a general practitioner or, you know, other veterinary professionals within the field, how do you view our role in talking to owners and, and helping with behavior and training issues? Uh, such a great question. You know, for me, the, the general practitioner is is frontline, right? It's it's that sort of initial individual who's often on the forefront of either hearing those initial concerns or perhaps identifying something within our history taking or our physical exam or that conversation that we have with the client in the consult room or perhaps across a, a telemedicine conference call if that's the way we're practicing. You know, we, we get that initial information where we go, ooh, wait a minute there's something here that we could potentially address. The vast majority, I would argue probably almost all of my clients have had a conversation with their general practitioner long before they ever have that conversation with me. So I really see the general practitioner as, as the front line of that initial sort of sounding board of, hey, this is my concern, what can we do about it? And you know, and what I love really working with general practitioners to, to, to really help them understand here is you don't have to know all of the answers about what to do about behavior, because guess what? If we go down the line of orthopedic medicine or endocrine disorders, or for me, it would be ophthalmology. I, 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 I don't <laughs> understand the eye. I just don't get it. It's not a part of my wheelhouse. So that doesn't mean I would never do, you know, a, a, a tear stain on, a, on, an, on an eye or I wouldn't actually just start the process, right? So you don't have to know all of the information, but if we can get some of the basic building blocks of, hey, let's ask a couple of questions, let's get a basic understanding. If it's something that I can help you to resolve, awesome, let's do it. If it's not, guess what? I know some practitioners that I can call to even pick their brain a bit over the phone and do a vet to vet consult and get some of that behavior specific advice, just like we might do a radiology consult or call in the, the ultrasonographer to get some additional imaging for us, right? It's the same process. 
But I think sometimes for, for the veterinarians that I've worked with and the veterinary students that I teach across the country, there's often this sort of idea that behavior is sort of an other. It's this completely different thing. And I feel, well, gosh, if I don't know all of the training principles, how could I ever be of help? And for me, it comes back to the basics. It's starting out by asking those questions. It's asking the client, hey, what are you concerned about? What do we want the animal to do? How do we want them to feel? Do I know how to apply the principles of environmental management and behavior modification using reinforcement-based strategies to address this? If I do, awesome. Then that general practitioner is perfectly positioned to help that client to cement that bond and to really bond that client to their practice as well. So that for me is the role of the practitioner. And then I love to be sort of the, well, the next step in the line, right? If someone says, hey, I don't know what to do, but I think you might want to talk to this person to get some additional advice. Awesome. Then a referral may be in order, referring them to a local veterinary behaviorist or someone who can work with that client across distance as well. It's a great opportunity. I think that takes the pressure out of a lot of us in general practice to say, approach it like any other type of medicine. You know, for me, I would say orthopedics. Like that was one of the first ones you brought up was I said, yep. Uh, You know, if it's not something very straightforward, then it's, it's out of my wheelhouse and being able to approach behavior and training like that just kind of takes the pressure off. Cause sometimes you do feel like you're in that situation where you're like, I have to fix it. I have to know everything about it. And if I don't know everything about it, then, then how am I going to be of any help? Exactly. Like you said. And so looking at it, just like we look at any other field of medicine that we're practicing, I think is a relief. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that that landed that way. Cause that's the way I like to think about it. Right. None of us knows everything about all of the things. Right. And the older I get, the more comfortable I am really leaning into that. Say, hey, no, every day is a school day. What can I learn today? What can I speak to with confidence? Where am I stretching my limits perhaps a little bit, but I can still do good work? And where do I just need to tag out and say, nope, that's above my pay grade. That is not me, not it. I'm out. And being able to speak to a client confidently about that, I find even if I'm not the one to give them the answer, I'm still able to speak to that with confidence which allows that client to really trust my recommendations. And just as I wouldn't want someone who, let's say, is not you know uncomfortable with orthopedics or someone who, like me, is uncomfortable with, with ophthalmology, I wouldn't want that individual to say, well, I'm the only one here, so I'll do the best I can and wing it. No, 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 we can do so much better, right? We have those resources available to be able to do that. So don't be afraid to, you know, phone a friend, call in a lifeline or whatever other analogy makes sense to you as you're hearing this. We've got options. This is a team effort. Absolutely, absolutely. So as we wrap up here, this has been full of great information. It, it makes a, a ton of sense. And and don't tell my husband this, but some of what you've been saying, I, he he's very good, you know, when it comes to working with animals and stuff like that. And, you know, when I've gotten frustrated with my puppy and stuff, he's gone, Cassie, stop playing checkers, play chess. You got to think more moves ahead than that. And so don't tell him that he was right with a lot of information your you have is, here. But your secret is safe with me. No, that's totally <laughs> I won't tell anyone, I promise. Sounds, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Uh, but kind of to wrap up here, what is the one thing that you wish everyone knew about training and behavior? What What's something you really want all of us to take away from this? Yeah, I think that the biggest takeaway for me is that I would say most things are possible. And I I mean that really intentionally. 
I'm not going to say that we can fix every single problem with training, right? There are certain patterns that we see in cats and in other species that may be coming from a physical or emotional place that training is a part of, but may not be the complete solution. And yet what I often, so that's one of the, the areas where we say we may need to pull back and say training isn't going to fix everything, but yet most things are possible, right? Animals are constantly learning. We're constantly taking in feedback and information from our physical and our social surroundings. And we're constantly assimilating and incorporating that information to figure out what's the best way to live in this environment. So if we're manipulating some of those details, we have a tremendous amount of, of opportunity to shape those behaviors into something that, that makes more sense for the animal, for the environment, for the relationship. And so, you know, for me, training is something that, you know, early in my veterinary behavior career, I, I look back and I say, yeah, I was a lot more focused on avoiding of problems and using medication. And that's great, right? It's a great start, but those are only two of the three prongs, right? The third prong is this training and behavior modification piece that we're talking about. And that's actually where learning occurs. Medication may reduce emotionality. We can use supplements. And there's a whole variety of things out on the market that allows us to, to, to really come at the problem from that angle. But those support the learning process. They're important, but they support the learning process. And so we really want to remember that, that again, most things are possible. I love that. I love that. Well, Dr. Pockle, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate all of the information, the encouragement, uh, the, the encouragement in particular has been just really helpful. That's awesome. Thank you so much for having me on, Cassie. It's been a pleasure to be a part of the conversation today. I hope you guys had as much fun as I did in that conversation. Thank you so much for tuning in and a big thank you to Dr. Pockle for joining us and VetraScience for making this possible. To learn more about VetraScience products, you can check them out on their website, www.vetraproline.com. That's www.vetriproline.com. For more episodes like this, click on the education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this episode, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day. <laughs>